As we continue our worship service today, I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 52, the end of 52, beginning of 53. That's in the Old Testament. If you need to grab a Bible, there should be one uh, underneath your, uh, the chair rack in your pews uh, there, or you can look it up on your device if you would like. And we're continuing our series through uh, this part of Isaiah. Again, we've spent uh, the last uh, three months or so journeying through Isaiah. We're coming into the home stretch. Next week, we'll have a concluding message to kind of tie all of the strands together. But uh, we have talked about four different songs, uh, servant songs of the Lord in Isaiah, 50, uh, in Isaiah. And then this last couple of weeks, we've been in Isaiah 52 and 53. Uh, you can look in your worship guide to see all the different themes that we have covered going uh, all through this journey on the back page of the worship guide, talking about the servant of the Lord being spirit-filled, being just, empowered, savior, prophet, rejected, and chosen, obedient, attentive, enduring. And then the last couple of weeks in Isaiah 52 and 53, we talked about his atoning work, the servant of the Lord atones, makes payment for sin that you and I cannot accomplish, that can only be accomplished for us by another. And in particular, last week, we took a uh, somber but important dive into the actual suffering of what Christ accomplished and saw the number of references in Isaiah 53 to Jesus' suffering for us and saw emotional, physical, we might say psychological, relational suffering that Jesus gave for us. And really, in a sense, a big part of my message last week was I'm not sure I'm not sure that we can, any individual person can have a saving relationship with Christ without at some level apprehending the fact that Jesus suffered for me. Jesus paid a price that I deserve and he took that upon him. So when we understand this Isaiah passage in 52 and 53, there's a reason it's the most common and well-known of these four uh, servant songs of the Lord because it's so precise, it's so beautiful, it so obviously makes connections to what Jesus has done. Again, written some 700 years or more before Christ walked on this earth. So today we are going to read, and today I want you to look at, as you already have probably deduced, this theme of victory. Victory and what Christ does and the victory that he accomplishes for us. It's uh, a little bit more veiled in these verses, but it's there. I think you'll see it. And we're going to just read six verses, the last three of 52 and then the last three of 53. So read along with me silently as I read aloud these words and look for these references to the victory of the servant of the Lord. Starting at verse 13 of 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which, was, which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. And then jumping to the end of chapter 53, starting in verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, 
he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes transgression, makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray uh, once again. Oh, Father, we praise you for all the directions that your word takes us. Father, we thank you for all the things that we have been learning in this series about the servant of the Lord, about our Savior Jesus. And we pray once again this week that you would impress them upon us. In particular, Lord, you would strike us with the reality of the victory of our Savior. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. What's interesting when we look at a passage like this section of Isaiah, the uh, enigmatic nature of it, the paradoxical, the ironic, if you will, uh, maybe a bit confusing, contrasting uh, dynamics that are presented there. When we think about the atoning work of Christ and that he essentially, these verses tell us, he wins by losing. He wins by losing. And if you've been around the church, if you've been around the gospel for a while, you're used to this message of what Jesus has done through his suffering, through his atoning work, that he ultimately rises, that he ultimately conquers sin. And we forget how paradoxical that really is. We read it in the context in Isaiah, and the verses move from suffering to victory. It strikes us with the paradoxes, the irony of it. I thought about it this week on the sort of humorous side. You've probably over the years heard a few Yogi Berra quotes, whether you know it or not. I looked a few of them up. I forgot how many there were, but talk about a guy who knew how to present irony and contrast and paradox a little bit with just a few words, usually in a joking and humorous way. A couple of those that he mentioned along his journey. He said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. He said, nobody goes there anymore to that place. It's too crowded. He said, it gets late early out there. He says, always go to other people's funerals. Otherwise, they won't come to yours. Y'all catching up here? All right, come on with me. This one I thought was pretty good for the Peters family with our four boys. You better cut that pizza into four pieces because I'm not hungry enough to eat six. Tough crowd today. Never answer an anonymous letter. And lastly, the one you've all already heard before is like deja vu all over again. Well, Barry had a way of catching paradoxes to turn a phrase, to turn an idea, to get us thinking. When we think about the gospel and what Christ is accomplished for us it's a beautiful woven tapestry of 
of paradox, I irony, enigma, if you want to call it that. And here's the main idea that I hope we'll take away today, specifically as we think about the victory of Christ. And that is this, that recognizing that Jesus accomplishes our atonement by losing to attain victory, we must delight in our deliverance and lose our life to save it. Delight in our deliverance and lose our life to save it. Well, last week, I guided us through the suffering passages in particular. We saw that almost 30 times in the space of just 15 verses in Isaiah 52 and 53, it describes the suffering of that servant. And, and in the same way, I mentioned last week that you know, if we're not dwelling on it regularly, if we, we get unfocused in our spiritual life, if, or if we go in a season of malaise or spiritual apathy or drifting, whatever we want to call it, it's easy to forget all that's been suffered on our behalf. Uh, likewise, today, it's, it's easy as well for us to forget the victory that's been won for us. And that we stand and we live in light of that victory as we're just singing in our songs this morning. Uh, the reality is that we can be unaffected in such a way that we really lack any real soul delight in the victory that Jesus has accomplished for us. We can walk through our days without uh, joy, without strength, without hope. batteries died on me. And as we think about these uh, verses then today, uh, I want you to think about it this way. If the gospel for you or for me is merely fire insurance, right? If it's just something that you pay a premium for so that one day maybe you use it and it's out of sight, out of mind, if that's kind of the way we think about the victory that Jesus has accomplished for us, it's not going to have much day-to-day -day impact on our level of delight, on our level of joy in the Lord. If that's the sort of view we have of our salvation, we're not going to really celebrate it because it's just a premium and it's been paid. Or maybe we believe somebody else has paid the premium, but it's not actively changing our lives, our hope. And, and, and of course, we think about this idea of victory as believers, we think about our society, it's easy to get pretty discouraged, isn't it? It's easy to get discouraged when we look at our culture and regardless of whether you kind of lean to use, you know, Tim Keller's paradigms toward a countercultural view of Christianity, I really want to establish among my family, in my church, in the institutions, a distinctively Christian expression of that. Or maybe your approach to being salt and light and trying to pursue the victory of the Lord in this world is you want to enter into the institutions and the elements of society and you want to bring change to them. You want to work from within to see that happen. Uh, you want to transform your workplace into a more godly place and be a distinctively Christian influence there. How, however you think about those things, it can be easy to slip into a, a bit of fatalism when we think about the things that are wrong in our world and be a bit hopeless about those matters. We can become pessimists as believers instead of those that would have joy. And of course, I'm not subscribing to some sort of Pollyanna 
glad game where we blissfully pretend that nothing's wrong in our lives or nothing wrong in the world. But as Christians, if you're in Christ, you have victory. We have victory. And that's not just with our culture at large, but that's with us as individuals. We can take hope that God is doing a work in you and me that he will carry on to completion. And I don't know about you, but when I see the ways that I sin and the sin patterns that keep going back to, it's a little bit uh, hopeless sometimes that God's actually doing something in me, not just that he's going to glorify me and make me into a holy one in his eternal kingdom, but he's, he's doing that now. He's building that work in you and me, and we can become pretty pessimistic when we see the brokenness. And so today, I want to invite you to enter into that delight. And I, I realize I'm going to talk about a couple of the ways we can go off track with that victory and have a little bit of sort of over-realized eschatology, as the theologians call it, where we, we uh, bring things that aren't promised till heaven into this life now because we struggle to wait on those things. So we're, we're going to see the, the ways we can be misguided with uh, victory talk. But as Christians, we, we ought to talk about victory. It's in the scriptures. It's, it speaks to us. Look, look at these verses, as a matter of fact. Uh, beginning in verse 12 that we looked, I'm sorry, verse 13 of chapter 52, we saw just a minute ago. Again, the passage is invi inviting you and me to behold something. Take a look. Observe. Draw your attention to this. My servant, it's describing this servant, shall act wisely, and it says he shall be high and lifted up. So this is a, a high victory, a lofty victory. It's not some low-level thing. This is accomplished at a high level, he, and he shall be exalted. It reminds us, of course, of the pathway we're going to talk about in a minute that Scripture gives us for us to enjoy the victory of Christ. In James 4.10, it says, humble yourself. In the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. So the pathway for the believer to enjoy victory is actually going low that we might be lifted up by our Savior. And of course, Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 12, I quote that often. So if you've been around here, you've probably heard me reference it. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, though in the form of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or clung to, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has what? Exalted him giving him the name that's above every name. So it's a high victory that Jesus has accomplished, and you and I ought to delight in that. That's what he's done. And then jump with me down to verse 15. It says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Oh, it's, a, it's a broad victory. We talked about that a few weeks ago and the fact that Jesus' atonement isn't inclusive in the sense that it spans the nations. It spans a, No person is beyond the reach of the kingdom of God's calling and choosing. No person, no individual, however far gone or however far flung. It's a broad victory. He'll sp sprinkle many nations. And then the last part of that, kings shall, shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. That tells me it's a sovereign victory, right? It's not just high and broad, but
but it's sovereign. It's uh, indomitable. It's undefeatable. Uh, if he's telling kings, you can shut your mouth, king, because Jesus is here to speak. That's sovereign, right? That's rule above rule above rule. There's a reason we call him. Again, if you've been around the church, you've heard this phrase all your life. Lord of lords and king of kings. It's not just a little phrase. It means something. He's the king above all kings and lords. I think about Mark uh, chapter 3 when I uh, consider any of these passages about Jesus' strength and his uh, sovereignty. Some of us maybe grew up with an image of Christ that's a, a little bit uh, weak, uh, maybe even uh, just a, a frail image of Christ perhaps that we have. And of course he does tender things, he does meek things, he loves and he cares, but he's also incredibly strong. And sometimes we forget that if we're not meditating on his victory. Mark chapter 3 verses 22 to 27 speaks to this and this is the people around him are accusing Jesus of certain things, and it's interesting what his response is. The scribes came down from Jerusalem, were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub. That's a demonic force they're attributing to Jesus. By the prince of demons, he has cast out demons. Okay, just pause and think about that for a minute. Not the most logical argument you could make, and Jesus is about to bust them up on it. Uh, logic matters. What makes sense matters. And he called them and said to them in a parable, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house divided against itself, the house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter. Listen to this. No one can enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed... He may plunder his house. What's Jesus saying? You see all this deliverance of people that I'm doing, Jesus says. You see all the salvation I'm bringing. You see the sin I'm forgiving. You see the restoration I'm bringing into people's lives. You see how people are being mobilized to serve and to love and to give themselves away to others. That's happening because I, Jesus, have tied up the devil. I'm winning. I am the strong man. Nobody will defeat me and that is a powerful and beautiful picture okay this is not about I'm not trying to make Jesus into Chuck Norris or Jack Bauer that's not what I'm trying to talk about here but hear me people of God who are discouraged and weighed down today Jesus wins he is the winner and he defeats the devil sin and all that is wrong and broken in this world. So I want, you to, I want you to hear that. I got at least one that wanted to hear that today. Now, how can we go sometimes a little bit off track with this? Well, give me just a second, if you will, to talk about how, okay, so victory means freedom, right? Victory by its definition kind of means liberation. If Jesus has rescued us, then he's freed us. And as believers, we're intended to use the freedom that we're given. It's freedom from sin and being stuck in just living for self and living for all the things that are broken and wrong. And instead, it's freedom to live for God's kingdom, live for others, live to be a blessing, live for uh, influence and gospel, salt and light. 
It's interesting. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1 is a passage that talks about, I thought about it today with the uh, paradox. It talks about the foolishness of the gospel and the foolishness of the cross and how that doesn't make sense to the world. Now, the interesting thing is a little bit later in 1 Corinthians in chapter 4, the apostle Paul is chiding and he, he's actually using a pretty, pretty sharp sarcasm as I read it to the Corinthians because their posture was, it wasn't they needed to be reminded of victory. They were so victorious and felt like they were so exalted through what Christ has done. They didn't think they needed anybody else in the world. And so Paul is challenging them in 1 Corinthians 4 and he chides them and says, already you have become kings. Right? They weren't listening anymore to what Paul was saying. They weren't in a place where they were prepared to be shepherded by other people in their spiritual journey. Right? And I, I want to say that to, in today's world, we really need to hear this because uh, I, I fear, I have concern for my friends, my fellow pastors. I know my own temptations and failings who live in a setting where they're unconnected from any church accountability, any denominational structure. Hear me say that's a problem. That's a person saying, I'm going to live as kings, right? I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be under any authority or anybody directing my life. It's an important thing for us to hear in terms of our involvement in the life of the church. And so many, we had a great uh, small group leaders meeting yesterday and life group leaders meeting to do some training on Saturday, which is awesome. I love the fact that those folks are taking time who are leading your groups and helping to facilitate life groups for you. But, you know, we're calling people in our church to involvement first in a life group that says, I can't live life by myself. I've got to have other people. I, I have victory in Christ, but I'm not a king. I don't live without, I don't live without anybody else shaping and needing somebody else to shape my life that's why we have life groups there and then it also means that when we come into that setting of life group in those kind of settings I come ready to receive right I come purposeful for that relationship I want to be a blessing to others and then be a blessing to me and shape that way so I think that's an important way that maybe we get victory wrong sometimes is that it develop if your understanding of victory means I'm an individual Christian who can rock and roll on my own and I don't need other people and don't need other be living any accountability or shepherding that's not a biblical view of victory right that's not what Christ's victory means well, take a look with me at the verses in uh, Isaiah 53 now as we, uh, as we close and we talk about the eternal, being, the eternal life that's described here, the fact that we're eternal heirs, and the fact that we have an inter eternal inheritance. Take a look at verse 10 of Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When he makes his soul an offering for sin, he shall what? Again, is this the paradoxical statement or what? He's going to crush the Savior. He's going to put him to grief, but he's going to see his offspring. And he'll he'll, he's going to prolong his days. It doesn't make any sense outside of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross where he conquers death and sin. So I want you to see that today where he's promising eternal life. He's promising an eternal inheritance and that we're his heirs and then verse 11 out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied <laughs> who's satisfied when you're in anguish of your soul unless it's the Lord Jesus who through the anguish of his soul 
is accomplishing exactly the victory that you and I need and that he wants to give to us. And then verse 12, I mean, this is a picture of a victory celebration, a victory, a spiritual victory lap, if you will. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. He's going to bless us. And how many of us have seen that in our lives if you've been in Christ for a while? And if we take stock, one of the ways we recognize the victory of Christ is being thankful. We're coming up on Thanksgiving week here pretty soon. And, and I invite you, I invite us to a posture of thanksgiving all the time. I know I so often have a posture of complaining or just neglect the, the spiritual practice of thankfulness. But thankfulness is recognizing all that Jesus has delivered to you and me. The spoils he's given to us. Thankfulness for other people in the body of Christ. Thankfulness for the person, whoever it was, who shared with us the gospel for the first time. Thankfulness for our salvation. Thankfulness for even struggles and challenges that God's with us in the midst of. Thankfulness for all of those things. Well, lastly, I'll close with this. Take a look with me at Mark chapter 8 in the New Testament. Back in Mark. We were there just a minute ago. Mark chapter 8. Verses 35 to 38. And I misspoke. I've got one other passage we'll touch on after this. But take a look at Mark chapter 8, verse 35 to 38. And it's Jesus again, and he's speaking about the cross and the implications. So what does this mean for you and me other than we ought to have greater joy and ought to have greater delight and ought to have greater thanksgiving and ought to be encouraged in the midst of uh, a discouraging life or a discouraging world. Well, it, it means transformation for you and me. If you have victory, then you don't have to keep a hold of everything in your life, your time, your energy, your resources. You can lose your life for the kingdom of God. Starting at verse Uh, 35, Jesus says this, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in his glory with his Father and his holy angels. Okay, so this is losing our life to save it. This is paradox. This is following in the path that Jesus did when he lost his life to give us salvation, when he gave his life to give us salvation. What does this mean? Well, to start with me, it means some Sundays when I feel discouraged, when I feel broken by my own fallenness or the disappointment of this world, and the problems and struggles that you all have as a flock, it, it means relying on the Lord's strength to walk up those stairs and get behind here and say, thus stays the Lord the best that I can and trust that he's going to work in that. It's losing my life and my own burdens that the Lord's salvation might go forth. For the teenagers in here, for those that are in school, the young, young ones, students, It might mean taking a sledgehammer to your intense desire to be liked and valued by everybody around you in school because you have a victory, the victory in Christ 
that you don't need to run after every opinion and every perspective of every kid that's probably going to waffle and probably going to change and probably going to abandon you at at the slightest drop of a hat. You can trust in the victory that's been accomplished by Christ. You don't have to compromise your commitments to the Lord for what other people are wanting you to do because you know you have victory in Christ. You don't have to win friends because you have the love and the victory of Christ. For those that are out in the workplace during the week, men and women who are out there in the world, it probably means that you surrender that uh, absolute pursuit of the promotion uh, and all that comes with it. It means that you yield that to the Lord and say, uh, Lord, however you want me to serve other people, to bless other people, to glorify you with the skills you've given me. Maybe I even take a sacrifice for someone on my team or on my group so that they can see and know the love of Christ, even though it's maybe going to cost me. We, we choose those things in, in our parenting. We've been in a parenting class here for a couple of weeks. It, it means that as parents, we, we have victory in Christ so we don't have to be our child's best buddy. Heaven forbid that we try to be our our child's best buddy. That's not our role. Our role is to be their parent. Is it great when we develop a friendship along the way with our children? Do I hope I have that with my own sons? Absolutely. But that's not our first role. And that means you're sometimes going to have to discipline, and hopefully in love and in grace, but you're going you're gonna to be at odds with your kids over things. You can't be their friends. And the victory in the Lord means that you're liberated to be able to do that. For those in our church, maybe who the Lord has blessed with accumulated resources, losing your life to save it means just what it sounds like with those things that God has provided for you. As you think about the needs around you in our church, the opportunities for ministry, it means I have victory in Christ. This life maybe isn't going to be all that much longer for us. So why not make an investment in his heavenly kingdom and the existence that we'll even enjoy in that heavenly kingdom? Losing our life to save it. All right, last passage. Revelation 19. Revelation 19. Interesting verses here that I'll close with. I really will close this time. Verse 11 of Revelation 19. Revelation is all the way at the end of your Bible. For sake of time, I'll just read this short little little bit. Uh, Starting in verse 6 of 19. It says, Then I heard what seemed like the voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. This is the celebration in the last few chapters of the Bible of the victory of Jesus ultimately accomplished after Revelation takes us through the battle and the struggle and the beast and the dragon and all that we will experience in this life until Christ returns. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt, that sounds like delighting in our deliverance, if you're following along today. And give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then look at verse 11. And the picture of the strong man once again. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, 
and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword from which to strike down the nations, and he will rule, rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of his fury on the wrath of God Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh. He has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray together. Well, Father God, we're so thankful that we have you, Lord Jesus, as our King, and we surrender afresh to you today. We ask this week as we go throughout each and every day that you would cause us to be a people who more deeply, uh, from a, a, a greater heart and soul level, delight in the deliverance that's been given to us by the victory that Christ has won. And we thank you, Lord, for the paradox that that victory comes through suffering, through losing that Jesus wins. And I pray that we would pick some tangible ways this week, each and every one of us, myself included, that we would lose something of ourself in order to experience deeper trust and deeper relationship and salvation with you in order to see your kingdom come through each of us living out that victory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.